Okay, good morning again. It's good to be with you this morning. Joe is in the membership class, so he asked me to fill in for him. We're going to do something a little different. When I say different, it's not really different. It's just different for me because we're, we're going to go to the Old Testament, which most of you know that I teach mostly from the New Testament, but we're going to go to the Old Testament this morning. If you want to be there, we're going to be in Second Chronicles. Now, if you know, if you do a lot of reading and studying in the Old Testament, you'll find that it can, can be challenging because of all the stories that are in there that are, there's so many miracles, there's talking animals, there's slaughtering of people that God commanded. There's, there's a lot of hard things in the Old Testament sometimes, and I tend to steer myself towards the New Testament. But um, today we're going to the Old Testament in Second Chronicles, and there was a verse in Romans 15:4 that I came across that meant a lot to me. It says, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Do we need hope today? A lot of you like to listen to the news at night, and it's kind of gotten to the point where I don't even want to listen to it. It seems so depressing to hear all the things that are going on in the world around us. Um, As you know, a lot of you know, I'm involved in the counseling ministry, and a lot of times in the counseling ministry, you're dealing with people who've lost hope. Uh, You know, their problems are so big and overwhelming, they just can't seem to find hope. And a lot of people just lose sight of the eternal perspective of things. And this scripture in Romans reminds us of all the things that were written in earlier time, Paul said, was written for our instruction through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So that's our goal today is to go to the Old Testament. We're going to look at a story in Second Chronicles about the life of King Asa. And we're going to try to grab some instruction from that that we might have hope. We want to learn from King Asa uh, the things that he did right and the things that he did wrong. And hopefully we're going to learn from that. Um, Have you ever met people that have a hard time learning from other people's mistakes? Have you had children that you've tried to tell, you know, this is what I did when I was growing up, don't you do this, and then they tend to go out and do the same thing, and they don't learn. That's, God's given us a road map, and they're, they're, the whole Bible is full of examples that we can take and learn from, and if we apply them to our lives, then we'll, we'll not make the mistakes that a lot of other people have already made. I know when my youth, I was guilty of trying to learn everything the hard way sometimes. I didn't want to listen to other people, so That's our goal. God is merciful. He's given us a book that gives us a lot of instruction. So if you want to be turning to 2 Chronicles, the main text is going to come from chapter 16. But we're actually going to read several different passages to get a feel of the whole story and what was going on. When you think of the Old Testament kings, and that's what 2 Chronicles, a lot of that is about is the kings. It's parallel passages in Kings, um, there's actually a parallel passage of this text in First Kings, but we're going to look at the chapter 16 of Chronicles. And when you think about the kings, who do you think of? Who's the main king you think of in the Old Testament? King David. Those were the glory days of Israel. You know, the kingdom was expanded. He was a righteous king for the most part. And he um, was blessed by God. And the, the kingdom thrived under David. And the, and the 
kingdom was united under David. When David died, who became king? Solomon, his son. And again, Solomon reigned still during this glory period to a certain extent. And the kingdom was still united during this time. But after Solomon died, there was conflict and division in the kingdom. And that's when the southern portion broke away and came what? Judah, right. So you have Israel in the northern kingdom, Judah in the southern kingdom. And during this period, there were... In Judah, there were, from Rehoboam to Zedekiah, there were 19 different kings. Only eight of them were classified as good, the rest as being evil. And in Israel, for the most part, all the kings were were bad. None of them were, you know, some were better than others, but they were, for the most part, none of them were righteous kings. But no king at that ever rivaled the stature of David. But the, the southern king of Judah was broke away. They were made up of... What two tribes? Do you remember? Judah and, and Benjamin. That was the two tribes that formed the southern kingdom. They were the ones that, the kings that reigned during that period were the ones that were in line with David's family, David's reign. So that was the line that was associated with the true and the living God, even though they didn't have good kings the whole period. Two of those kings are mentioned in the chapter we're going to look at, King Abijah and King Asa. King Abijah was the son of Rehoboam, who was the first king. He only ruled for three years. After Abijah, his son Asa became king, which is the one we're going to look at. Now, you can break this period of the reign of King Asa, and I've titled the lesson, Lessons That We Can Learn From the Life of King Asa. And you can break this, his reign into three periods. And we're going to briefly look at the first two, just to give a rehash so we know where we're at. And then we're going to really study the, the third section of his life in a little more detail. The first period of King Asa's reign I titled Peace and Victory. And we'll have to turn back to chapter 14 and read a few verses to get a feel for what was going on in the first years of his reign. Chapter 14, I'll read the first eight verses. So Abijah slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David and his son Asa became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars in high places, he tore down the sacred pillars, he cut down the Asherim. The Asherim was the goddess of Asherah. It was like a wooden statue or something. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah, And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed. And there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. For he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. So you see that this first period, because of his father, he was given 10 years of peace in the land. 
And what did Asa do during this time? He used this time to lead the people in a spiritual revival of sorts. There was national reformation. He cleansed the land of idols, tore down the high places. And then he used this, this time of peace to fortify cities and build up the army. And, and, you know, so in case trouble does come, he's going to be ready for it. So you can see that this period, he used it wisely. And trouble was about to come. You can see in verses 9 to 12 of this same passage that trouble came. It says, Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men, 300 chariots, and he came to Marashah. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephathah and Marashah. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us. O Lord, our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are, not, you are our God. Let no man prevail against you. So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. So you can see that at this point in time, Asa is living for the Lord. He's calling on the Lord. It reminded me of the story of David and Goliath. You know, when David and Goliath battled David came to Goliath and what did he say he said you come to me with spirit and sword and javelin but I come to you in what in the name of the Lord of hosts the army of Israel the God of Israel so that's kind of the call that Asa had he 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 has he, he comes up to this battle against a million I still fathom me that back then there was an army of a million men and he only had about 300,000. So he comes up against a, somebody triple in size. He calls upon the Lord, and the Lord routed the Ethiopian army. After that victory, that great victory, what happens sometimes when people are, have great victories in their life? Sometimes they get proud, or they maybe think, I, I'm really good, I did this, or I did that. And God didn't want... Asa to fall into that trap. So he sent him, he sent to him someone to, to basically give him a warning. He sent him a prophet of the Lord. And look at verse 15, chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. You'll see what the prophet says. Chapter 15, the prophet says, Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. In those times, there was no peace to who went out to him or who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you, be strong, do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. So you can see that the prophet comes and gives a little bit of a warning to him. Even though he had been acting all right, God felt the need to give him a warning. And now there's a couple of ways that Asa could have responded. He could have said, I've been doing this. You know, I've turned to the Lord. I was on the right track. You know, I don't know why are you bothering telling me this? Um, you know, you, what did I do wrong? I didn't do anything wrong. Why are you warning me? But that's not what he did. He actually took the advice very well, which leads to the second period in the reign of King Asa. And I titled that Reformation and Renewal. Chapter 15, starting in about verse 8. I'll read a few verses. This is his response. 
Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecies which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord which was in front of the porch of the Lord. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with them. For many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of Asa's reign. They sacrificed to the Lord that day seven hundred oxen, seven thousand sheep from the spoil they had brought. They entered into the covenant to seek their Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. All Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. I thought that was, you know, pretty neat that Asa took that encouragement and he just, he ran with it. I mean, he said, I've been doing this, but I'm going to renew my energy and we're going to keep doing it. We're going to tear down the idols. We're going to, you know, really encourage all the people to, that's not really a good word, he commanded them to worship the living God. Uh, it said they were put to death even if they they chose not to. But I thought it was, you know, as I thought about that, I thought about just the church today. Don't we need some kind of renewed energy to seek the Lord as a, as a church, as a people? Not every individual church, but the church as a whole could really use a renewed vigor to the things we already know to be true, to do, just a renewed vigor and commitment to rededication to doing what we already know is to, to, to be done right. And God blessed this attitude because verse 19 of chapter 15 says, And there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Asa ruled for 41 years, and for 35 years of his reign, it was pretty much peaceful. He had that one little battle that God routed the Ethiopians. But something happened during this time, and everything falls apart in year 36. And that brings us to the third period of Asa's reign, and the one we really want to learn from. I titled this Relapse and Discipline. Chapter 16 is, is where we'll go now. And this is the 35th year of Asa's reign, and we're going to read what happens. Chapter 16, I'll read the first 14 verses. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from coming out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Benadad, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Benadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abelmaim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. When Baasha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his work. Then King Asa brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building, and with them he had fortified Geba and Mizpah. I'm going to stop there for a minute. So we see as in this 35th year of reign, 
the Lord sent Baasha, king of Israel, to war against him. Verse 1 tells us that Baasha fortified Ramah, which was a city about six miles north of Jerusalem. From there, he could institute a blockade, and he could kind of control everything that went in and out of the city. That's a pretty good military tactic. Now, you would think at this point that knowing Asa's history and how he called on the Lord before, you would think that that's what he would do at this point in his life, but he doesn't do that, did he? What did he do? Turned to politics, kind of, didn't he? He turned to this king of what would be Syria and asked him to break his alliance with Baasha and go to war against him. Verse 4 tells us that Benadad did exactly that. He sent armies, conquered several cities. Because of this, Baasha quit fortifying Ramah, and Asa was able to go into Ramah, tear down everything that he had built, used all the material and equipment, took it back to his own place, and was able to even fortify a couple of his own cities for it. So all is well. Judah's safe. Baasha is humiliated. King Asa has peace again in the land. That's where we stand if we don't keep reading. Now we're going to keep reading. Verse 7 says, At that time Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on you will surely have wars. Then Asa was angry with the seer and put him in prison for he was enraged at him for this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at the same time. Now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet his disease was severe, yet even his, in his disease he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had cut out for himself in the city of David, and they laid him in the resting place, which he had filled with spices of various kinds, blended by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire for him. So you can see the rest of the story doesn't give as much credit to him as the first six verses did. So this tells us that the Lord wasn't pleased with the outcome, even though King Asa and the people of the land probably were, the Lord was not. And instead of turning to the Lord, he relied on the king of Syria to do his battle for him. And because of that, it says he missed a blessing. The prophets tell him that if he had trusted the Lord, that not only would that have been delivered to him, but the king of Syria and all of his armies would have been delivered to him. And when I first read this, our first instinct was to think, how stupid. You know, this man, he's done it before. He's turned to the Lord. What caused him to be so dumb and stupid and to not turn to the Lord? But then I got to thinking, don't we do that? Don't we do things and handle things in our own power many times without turning to the Lord? Why is it? Why do, do we not automatically turn to the Lord first? Anybody got a suggestion? Pride? I think we're going to get to that in a minute with King Asa because I, I think maybe that had, might have had something to do with it. Even in the little things, the Lord wants us to come to him to trust him. And 
The Bible says, in all things, by prayer and supplication, let your request be known to him. So this lesson really convicted me. What it was really convicted me was the fact that the Lord is not pleased even if things turn out good. You know, that's not the criteria that we use is whether things turn out or not. Many times I'm afraid that when I neglect to turn to him, seek his help, and go out alone, turn, things turn out good. I may even praise him or give him credit after the fact, but I, I didn't turn to him at the beginning. The rest of the story of King Asa's reign, unfortunately, doesn't get any better. Verse 9 told us that the prophet declares to King Asa that he acted foolishly, that he would not stay at peace, that he would surely have wars. How did Asa take that? Remember the, other, the earlier prophet, he took his encouragement. This time the prophet told him something. How did he respond? He got mad. He got angry. He threw him in prison. It said he impressed some of the people. So you can see there's a lot going on in the life of King Asa as far as his response this time versus what happened prior. So it was a, you know, I think, and then a few years later he gets a disease in the feet, probably the Lord disciplining him and giving him another chance to repent. Does he repent? No, he turns to the doctors to try to get his cure. He doesn't turn to, to the Lord then, even then. Two years later, it says he died. And this is very sad when you think about it. This was a man for most of his life, seemed to be living a righteous life, living for the Lord. Something happened along the way, and he became careless in his walk. I like the way the chapter ended when it described his burial, because it says, verse 14, ends with the words, they made a very great fire for him. And one of the commentaries I read said that his life went up in smoke. You know, he kind of ended... Um, you know, up in smoke. This is a perfect example of someone who didn't end well. And the older I get, my desire for the rest of my life is to finish well, to really finish strong for the Lord. Have you once known someone who was on fire for the Lord, who was always in church, who was very active, involved in ministry, always talking about the Lord, but as they matured and got older and maybe just kind of became apathetic and just seemed to, to fade. Their zeal for the Lord seemed to fade. Y'all, have you known people like that? See some heads shaking? Hopefully it's not us, but sometimes I've, I've seen it happen and sometimes I'm guilty in my own life. Revelation talks about this when it condemns the church. It says that you've lost your first love and that's that's a warning to all of us to not to lose our first love. And that's, not what I want. So in a nutshell, this is the story of King Asa's life. So the challenge to us is, how do we apply this? What can we learn from it? Romans 15:4 that I read earlier tells us that this was written for our instruction so that we would learn from it. So I came up with six lessons from the life of King Asa that I came away with after reading this. Number one lesson is that sin is progressive. What was King Asa's first sin? Anybody? What do you think? What was his first sin? Pride? It's kind of a trick question because the first sin that's actually mentioned is really the sin in the sense of not turning to the Lord in the sense that he went off after the, to the king of Syria for help and didn't turn to the Lord. But something must have happened in his life to cause him to get to that point. We, we don't really... 
Yeah, I think power and pride probably had a play in it. He had been successful. He's 35 years. He's been reigning. Things have been going well. He's had victory. We don't know what really happened in his heart, but we know that something happened in his heart because when trials came, he didn't turn to the Lord. He turned to his own power, his own influence, his money from the treasury, the king of Syria. And then you see what sins happened after that first sin that started in the heart. Then he did, what, bribery, you know, bribing someone. He had an unholy alliance. The Bible says not to be unequally yoked. He was really had an unholy alliance there. He had this, the anger problem. He had this, the oppressing the people, putting the prophet in jail. You can see that the, whatever started this chain reaction, the sins didn't stop. He didn't immediately repent. Sin can be progressive. It can kind of lead down a road. And I think that's a caution to all of us to take sin seriously. Stop it. When you're first convicted, you need to repent and to stop it and to halt the path of destruction that sin can cause. The the verse in James, it says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And that when sin is accomplished means when it is mature, when it is continued, when it becomes a life pattern that brings forth death. So we want to stop it and take it seriously. You know, we know Jesus, how seriously Jesus took sin. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your right hand stump causes you to stumble, cut it off. That's how seriously Jesus took sin. And I think that's the first lesson that I got was that sin is progressive. And where does it start? Sin always starts in the heart and the mind. It doesn't start with the outward expression. That's why we're told, I think we did a lesson on, and John, John talked about being transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's why we have to renew our mind. So we have to protect our mind. I thought about the sin of David's brothers, or Joseph's brothers, rather, when they put him in the well and then sold him into slavery and all the things that happened to Joseph. Where did that sin begin? Jealousy. Jealousy of the coat of many colors. We learned that as a child. Um, But sin starts in the mind, so we have to protect our mind. But it is, the first lesson is that sin is progressive in nature and we need to take it seriously and stop it. The second lesson is when we rely on our own resources, all may go well for a season. It seemed like in the life of King Asa that things were going okay, didn't they? It seemed like things were working out. But it didn't really work out. The Lord was not happy. And and if you read the rest of the history of what went on in Judah, it was not going to end well. But if you think about it, things that we do, and actually even the church has become what many call pragmatic. You know what pragmatic means? Practical or do what works. When you are pragmatic, you do what is practical or what works. And even churches today are pragmatists in the sense that they do what works. They, they count the numbers. They count the. They look at all the different method, methodology of things. How do we witness? How do we do this? How do we do that? And they do what works. If it increases the numbers, then that means it's working. We'll do that. doesn't matter whether it's biblical. It doesn't matter whether God says do it, but it's pragmatic. It works in the sense of getting the result that we intend. But we are not called to be pragmatics. We are called to be obedient children of the Lord so it doesn't really matter things may go well for a season but if they're not according to biblical standards or biblical principles 
then that's not um, the way we are to go. And I thought, you know, I had to think about myself. Um, don't we do this? I, when I got cancer, I immediately turned to the Lord. That's too big for me, you know. But when I have this problem, I know how to handle it. And I can, I can just take off and I handle it. That's really what Asa did, was it not? He knew how to handle that problem. He knew how to get rid of that invader. That's not what God wants. God wants our total dependence upon him. It doesn't mean that he won't lead us to do that, but he wants us to understand that our dependence is on him. Ultimately, can we really control or dictate anything in our life without his help, without his blessing? It doesn't matter what it is. We think we might have the skill or the wisdom or whatever to do it, but things can happen and turns can ha take place that throw us totally out of our realm in, in a matter of seconds. The Lord wants us to include him, to acknowledge him in everything that we do, which leads us to the third one. Third lesson is when we rely on our own resources, we, we may miss God's blessing. Verse 7 and 8 told us that even though the, the surf, on the surface it seemed like it was working, it says that if he had called on the Lord for help instead of the king of Syria, then not only would he have defeated Baasha and his army, the king of Syria, and his entire army would have been delivered to him. And that's important because if you read the history of what went on, the king of Syria became a thorn in the flesh of Judah for many more years. It wasn't a friendship. It was just about the money for him. He paid him. He bribed him to do this thing. Later on, he was ended up being, they fought against him for many more years. So he thought things worked out well, but he didn't really, you know, he had a prophet come and tell him what would have happened had he, you know, obeyed the Lord and sought the Lord in that. And I thought about that. How many times have I missed a blessing because I didn't include the Lord in my decision? It's simple things like buying a car. That's not a complicated thing in today's world. You go on Craigslist and you find a car and you take it to your mechanic and he looks at it and says it's okay and so I got this good used car at a good price. I feel good about it. I didn't include the Lord. He may have had a better car at a better price that I totally would have never been made aware of. And you could, you could multiply that on any decision that we make, a relationship problem at work, whatever it may be. You think you have a skill to overcome that on your own, but you may miss a blessing because of it by going about it your own way. It may seem on the surface you may never know what you miss. It may seem that it all worked out good. But according to the principles we learned from the life of King Asa, many times there may have been a blessing that we missed out on because we didn't follow and include the, the Lord in our plans. So that's the third lesson. The fourth lesson comes from verse 9 of chapter 16. Let me read that one again. Verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. The Lord's eyes move to and fro. What's that referencing? Think about the, you know, the way the Bible uses human terms. God has eyes that move to and fro. In, in subtle ways, that's referencing God's omniscience and omnipresence. Um, those are theological words that talk about omniscience, talks about his all-knowingness. Omnipresence talks about him being everywhere or being near. And those, I think that's something that King Asa neglected to realize, that 
didn't really matter whether he was including the Lord. The Lord was there. The Lord is here. He's, he's everywhere. And those are mind-boggling thoughts that we need to remember. Nothing escapes God's notice. Whether we acknowledge him or not, he is there all the time. Hebrews 4.13 is a scripture I love. It says, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. You know, Jonah tried to run from God. We know what happened to him. I love Psalm 139. You can't get away from God. One, Psalm 139, 7 through 12 says, Where can I go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me, and thy right hand will lay hold of me. And I could go on. The Bible's full of examples that talk about this topic of God being everywhere, knowing everything. To think correctly on the subject, you have to not think in terms of space because God is not confined to space. Those illustrations are just used to help us because that's the way we can understand it. There's a scripture in Jeremiah 23, 24 that says, Do not I feel heaven and earth. Uh, A.W. Tozier has a little book called The Attributes of God, and he uses an example like this. He says, To understand this is to think of a bucket being filled with water, but don't picture the bucket in the middle of the street filled with water. Think of it in the middle of the ocean, submerged a mile deep, surrounded by water. The bucket is full of the ocean, but the ocean surrounds it. So when God says he fills heaven and earth, he does, but all heaven and earth are submerged in God. So don't think of God as human and him seeing everywhere from afar off. He's near to everyone and everything because everyone and everything is submerged in him. All those are mind-boggling truths, and we all believe them, but why do we not act like it all the time? Why do we sometimes not include God or act like he's not there or not part of it? You have to ask yourself that. He's there. Every thought, every motive, every attitude that goes on in our brains, he's there. Don't have time to discuss that too much. We'll move on. Fifth lesson is that we need to learn from the life of King Asa is that God delights in blessing those who are completely devoted to him. Again, in verse 9, it says that the eyes of the Lord moved to and fro, but they went to and fro all over the earth for a reason. What was that reason? To support those whose heart is completely his. And I left out a word. To strongly support those who are his. Completely his. Giving their heart completely to him. God delights in this. Some people think that God delights in punishing people. But that's far from the truth. Psalms 18:19 says, He rescues me because he delights in me. Psalms 37, 23 says the steps of man are established by the Lord and he delights in his way. God delights to strongly support who? Those who are completely given their heart completely to him. So you have to ask yourself, what does that mean to give your heart completely to him? Who do you know that is an example of someone that has given their heart completely to the Lord? Billy Graham. I think of Apostle Paul, first off, just biblically, because he's just an amazing man who just 
just gave it all. I mean, he gave it all. I mean, you think about Paul, he just, he gave it all. And there's, there's people like that. I could name some people I know that um, I feel like have really given their heart completely to the Lord. But what does that mean? Does that mean they work hard for the Lord? Does it mean, you know, that they've done great things for the Lord, mighty things for the Lord? God wants, John, fully committed, submitted, submitted. That means that the Lord is the Lord of your life. It's you are willing to do whatever he calls you to do. You include him in everything. You don't have pockets of your life that are devoted to him and then other pockets where you disclude him. Totally devoted means that you are willing and able to include him in all of your life and submit your will to his will. Do you want to be strongly supported? That's a picture to me of something that I don't know that I've really ever grasped that, that the Lord wants to strongly support me. And it's up to me. All I have to do is give my heart completely to him, and he will strongly support me. And the implications of that are, are great. You think about that. Lesson six, and what I would call the main point of this lesson from the life of King Asa, is the folly of trusting in anything else but the Lord. This is a focal point of the passage. The main lesson we need to take away from the life of King Asa is that trusting in anything outside the Lord is folly. There, there is nothing else that we are to turn to. We're commanded throughout Scripture. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Proverbs 18.10, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine an unscalable wall. So I think about those things. I think, okay, what's my fortified city? What am I trusting in? What am I turning to? You know, I thought about all the different things that, that we turn to. I mean, many people turn to their careers and their job and their success. Many people turn to their education, their degrees on their wall. Some people turn to their money and their power. Even some people turn to their families. You know, if their family was taken from them, they'd fall apart. That's their life, is their family, their kids, you know. What is your fortified city? It needs to be the Lord. As a nation, we have things we depend on. We depend on our military might. You know, there's not really a true Christian nation anymore that turns to the Lord of God. That was a unique time. There's been glimpses of that where we felt like we had that in this country, but we didn't have leaders that turned to the Lord to make decisions very often. That's not been, not happens a lot. It's happened some. But it's important to note that we are not to disregard the normal means of supply God has given us. We're just not to trust in them. God gives us doctors. He gives us medical technology. We're, we're to go to the doctor. We're to seek medical technology. But we don't place our trust there. We place our trust in the Lord. The Lord is the great physician. He directs the wisdom and the guidance of the doctors. He works with them. He works without them. It, it, it's all him. Many of us are getting older, and we've been around long enough to know that our health can dissipate in a matter of seconds. You know, it can go away. We can think we're on. I know when I was young, I was a, I just felt invincible. And, you know, I, I know that's not the case anymore. Uh, it can disappear overnight. 
our finances can change immediately. I, I don't know if all of you know this or not, but I used to be a stockbroker. And I was a stockbroker in what was the tech bubble of the 1990s. And I had clients that had made huge sums of money in the stock market and with their company stocks. And when some of these Qualcomm and some of these NASDAQ stocks burst and some people lost everything they owned. Their whole retirement accounts were in stocks like this, maybe their company stock, the company they worked for. Many of them lost 60 to 70 percent of everything they owned in a matter of weeks and months. There's no guarantees in life. We have none. We can lose our health. We can lose our family. We can lose our money. So it's folly to trust in anything outside of the Lord. That's the the sixth lesson. So as I end, there's a two-part question that I basically like to end with as I thought about this, and it, it is, can we trust him? There's two parts to the question. One, and him, of course, is God. Can we trust him in the sense that is he trustworthy? How did King Asa should have known that God was trustworthy? He didn't have the Holy Scriptures in the sense of the New Testament. How, how could he have known that God was trustworthy? He answered his prayers. He had a history with God, did he not? He had seen God work in his life prior. He had history with God that shows God trustworthy. Most of us as Christians have a history with God. He has worked in our lives at some point. We have seen it, felt it. So as we grow older, we should not grow apathetic. We should grow emboldened. We have a God who is trustworthy. We should not get apathetic in our Christian walk, we should actually be more bold in our Christian walk because we should be learning that God is trustworthy. We actually have, even if you didn't have that experience, we have the, the written word of God that tells us he's trustworthy. We don't need anything else. We have more than that, but we actually have all we need in his word that tells us he is trustworthy. The second part of the question is, can we trust him? Who is it Outside of talking about the Lord, who is it in your life that you trust the most? People that you're closest to you, right? He's pointing to his spouse, your friends, your loved ones. You know, you're the people that are the closest to you, that you know the best, you have experience with them, and you love them dearly, and you can trust them. That's the same principle as can we trust God. That part of the can we trust God depends on us. Do we have the kind of relationship with the Lord that will allow us to trust him? Do we have that history with the Lord and, and knowing the Lord and praying with the Lord and communing with the Lord and seeing him work and pray, answer prayers in our lives? That is our responsibility. God is there. He is trustworthy. Can we trust him is dependent upon us and our relationship with him. So, if we want to end well, if we want to finish well the remainder of our life, it's dependent upon keeping that relationship with the Lord strong. Something happened to King Asa in his relationship. We don't know exactly what it was. We don't know whether it was pride, whether it was a lack of, of obedience. We don't know exactly what it was. But somewhere along the line, his relationship with the Lord grew cold in his heart, which outwardly expresses itself in his actions. You got his thoughts were impure. That's what I said earlier. Sin starts in our mind. We need to keep reminding ourselves of that and working on renewing our mind. So as we close today, I just pray that you will be, like me, convicted that we need to finish well 
that we need to be fully devoted to him, that he will support us, that we have a God who is trustworthy. It's up to us to continue to include him in all aspects of our life, even the little things, because that's important to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder through the life of King Asa that you want to be included in all aspects of our lives. May there not be any hidden closets or realms within our hearts and within our bodies and minds that we refuse to let you in. May you be allowed in. May we allow you in, Father, and may you transform our hearts and our minds and become more dependent upon you, therefore becoming more Christ-like. May we finish well, Father, for the kingdom. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.